Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it. You have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if you want to solve these hard problems because... I was, my eyes were really opened up talking to Craig and what can happen if we step out of our comfort zone and only talking to people who agree with us often won't get us to the solution. That was Leah Garces, the president of Mercy for Animals, a leader in the animal protection movement and the author of Grilled, turning adversaries into allies to change the chicken industry. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the social, health, and ecological impacts of factory farming, which dominates animal agriculture in the United States, the value and opportunities that lie in reaching across the aisle to work with people who we may view as our adversaries, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, if you've read my book, you'll know that I grew up in the swamps of Florida, and right in my backyard was a canal. And in that canal were ducks. And these ducks would lay their eggs in my mother's prized flower bed. Mm. And it was right up against the screen of my back porch. And so my brother, sister, and I could like lay on our bellies and quietly watch the lives of these ducklings unfold (laughs) from like hatching moment to the first time they went out into the canal. And it really gave me a very front row seat to the lives of birds, of ducks, and therefore gave me the ability to have empathy, I think, in a very unique way to chickens and really all what we call poultry in the general term. And I grew up like having no doubt in my mind that these animals were worthy of protection and respect and deserved to live a life worth living. And as I grew older and when I was around 15, I saw a documentary I can't even remember. I think it was a PETA documentary that really was about where our meat came from. And I was totally shocked up until that point. I hadn't really made the connection and Mm -hmm. I immediately went vegetarian and I thought I want to be a vet. I really want to help animals. So I I did zoology as my degree and I, I thought I wanted to be a vet, but my mentor at the time said, Leah, you really want to get to the root of the problem. Like vets are great, but they fix animals once they're broken already. And you want to get to before that. Mm. And I had been working with that particular, my mentor at the time, and and in Florida, there was this runoff problem happening on farmlands. It was an organochlorine that was running off and then turning alligator populations hermaphroditic. They were affecting and causing alligator populations to decline. And this is where I first made the connection between animals and agriculture in that kind of environmental sense. And so I went to England to do my master's degree and look at sustainable development around agriculture. And from there, I discovered that there were organizations totally devoted to to stopping factory farming. 
And I, I really didn't look back from there. So my first proper job was with Compassion and Wild Farming in you know the early 2000s and 2000, I think. Mm. And I really didn't look back from there. That's where I discovered a whole world that a whole career path that's devoted to farmed animals. Mm. To set the stage for our conversation today around animal agriculture, I want to first say that most of our listeners are already aware of the cruelty that goes on behind the doors of our factory farms. But for people who are just learning about this, I highly recommend Leah's organization, Mercy for Animals, which has a lot of helpful resources in this area. And you can check that out at mercyforanimals.org. But what I want to highlight is that this problem may be a lot bigger than we realize because 78% of cows, 98% of pigs, 98.9% of turkeys, and 99.9% of chickens raised for consumption come from those factory farms. These numbers are from 2017. I'm not sure how the numbers have changed since then, but that was not so long ago. So we definitely have a lot of work to do. For those who may be unfamiliar with how this came to be, how did we go from collectively eating animal products more so as a treat and only from local uh, small family farms to having this monster of an industry that has industrialized and commodified animals and also to this norm now where meat has become the center of the American plate? That's a great question. And I think it's good to have the perspective that the way we eat now has not been the way we've always eaten. And it's only been about 50, 60 years where we've thought meat had to be the center of our plate and in such large amounts. So if, you know, I think of the span of human history, it's, it's changeable, it's doable to undo that and, and evolve again into something else. So just keep in mind, it's only been 50 years where we've been eating this large amount of protein from animals. And really it stemmed post-World War II when there were food, food shortages and there were a whole bunch of policies that were passed both in Europe and the United States that subsidized and made it easier for this cheap model of production to exist. And that model of subsidies still exists today, even though we're, hard, we're not in a post-World War II food shortage era. And we haven't changed the policies or evolved the policies since then. So subsidies still favor and help this form of cheap, this cheap model of protein production, which uh, as many as your, your listeners will know, causes so much cruelty. And the issue now, of course, is on this scale, it's causing, so the costs are, are not borne by the industry, but on everyone else. So whether it be on health or antibiotic use or environment or on the animals themselves or communities of color living around the areas or poor communities in or workforces that are living and working in slaughterhouses, like everyone else is bearing the cost of this now. And the short answer is we're using a post-World War II government subsidy program to prop up a very unsustainable broken business model. And it only continues to exist because of that. If we could take apart those subsidies, take apart those government, the government support for that, it would rapidly be revealed as a bankrupt system. Mm. I think we've gotten so used to the current system that we're forgetting that we can change it because we created it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I say that in the book, but the same minds that created this awful system are now innovating our way out of it and can continue to innovate. So some of the plant-based proteins that are starting to evolve and create solutions or even some of the meat that's coming not from slaughter but from cell-based agriculture – 
all of this is like, we are capable of the most insane, cruel system, but we're also as human beings, incredibly creative and innovative. And Mm -hmm. I have every faith we can innovate out of this as well. It hasn't been that long. As I said, it's only been post-World War II that we started to treat animals this way. Mm. While you've committed your career to fighting for the rights of animals that end up on our plates, as you've been going about your research, what were some of the most shocking things you learned or even witnessed yourself of the industry and its impact on the environment? Oh, well, uh, (laughs) some of the, (laughs) where do I start? Um, Probably the, the dead zone was something that was really shocking to me that I was largely unaware of. And, and that really comes back to what, when we think about the environmental impact of farmed animals and factory farms, often we limit our thoughts to just the warehouse that the animals are kept in. But the, the really often, the really especially with chickens, the big environmental impact is coming from where their feed is being grown. And what I saw was huge portions of the United States being used to grow factory farmed, uh, you know, GM monoculture corn. And then that corn, that land, that air, precious arable land is, is, is being wasted. So all that corn is being grown to feed animals in factory farms. But what was more shocking or the most shocking thing to me was all the runoff. So there's a bunch of chemicals that are put and pesticides that are put onto that corn. That runoff goes into the Mississippi, goes down the Mississippi, and then is creating a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. And I went and visited the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and jumped in there and swam in the dead zone. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, it was a pretty, it was, we, we, we got on a boat and we went off the coast of like New Orleans about 15 miles out and you hit all these, uh, these oil rigs that are out there. And we tied, you know, we kind of parked ourselves next to an oil rig and jumped in and what it's not what you think you're going to see. So a dead zone means that at the bottom layer of the water, there's no oxygen anymore that it's been, really all the, all the phosphorus and nitrogen has, has shut out oxygen, meaning nothing that needs oxygen, which is almost everything can live there. So all of the shrimp, so all the shrimp, the crabs, the fish, they've either moved, they've either moved up the water columns or out. Mm. And you see really strange things like crabs, like 15 miles out in the deep sea, like swimming around in the top. And like, it's really bizarre. And And as a result, it's not just impacted, of course, all the marine life that's lived there, but also the shrimp industry there has been small kind of shrimp industry has has been devastated as well. Mm. That was probably kind of making the connection between the land that is being used to raise in the most unsustainable way, all this corn, all this soy, and then that impacting the dead zone and creating the dead zone. And we see this happening right now, right, with the Amazon. And people are talking about beef as being the culprit here. And yes, beef has played a large part and with, with the clearing of land, but a huge amount of that land is actually for soy. And the soy is to feed factory farmed animals in the Amazon. I mean, sorry, the, the, the land, the deforestation is happening so that we can grow soy to feed factory farms animals. So making that connection between the clearing of the land, the using of our precious arable land, to only feed animals in factory farms. Like the connection and the environmental impact goes beyond that warehouse, that like rectangle the animals are. It goes wherever that feed is too. And a third of our arable land right now is being used to feed factory farmed animals around the world. Mm. The impacts definitely 
ripple out far beyond just where where the factory farms are taking place themselves. So there's a lot to think about there and learn in terms of how everything is connected. And in your recently published book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry, you mentioned that you were a part of what you call traditional animal rights activism for 15 years before you decided to sit down with chicken farmers and meat industry executives to find common ground. What was the turning point for you that sparked you to change your approach? The turning point was meeting a factory farmer himself. So that was in the summer of 2014. And I had been introduced to a Purdue chicken contract farmer by a journalist. And at that time, I had been desperately trying to see inside of a factory farm, right? So I had tried every legal professional way to see inside a chicken factory farm and to film in there and to show and to know what is happening. And every attempt had failed because as many people will know, ag-gag exists in many states. Um, Ag-gag means that it's literally illegal for a person like myself to film inside of one of these farms. And I can go to jail if it's a criminal offense. And whistleblowers can go to jail instead of the abusers themselves. So this was like a last resort, but I did it anyway. And I was really scared to go I was very convinced that it was some kind of trick, a trap, like driving there. I was like, why does this man want to meet with me? But I felt like I had to do it. And I, I, in my head, there was like an ambush about to happen, you know, like there was going to be farmers with pitchforks, and, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And that's not what happened. Instead, I had my mind changed. And, you know, it's really easy to hate someone that you've never met before. And I, as I, you know, sat and listened to his story and how he felt that he felt very trapped as well as the chickens and he felt he couldn't get out. He basically had, he had been raising, by the time I met him, he'd been raising chickens for 22 years in factory farms. And he did this because he wanted to stay on the land and he was in a poor rural county in North Carolina and there were very few jobs. And so when Purdue came to town, and offered him a contract, he thought, okay, dream come true. I'm going to do it. He took a quarter of a million dollar loan out. But, and, and, and basically he paid, Purdue paid him for each flock that he raised. And then with that money, he paid off the loan like a mortgage. But soon the birds got sick. They're factory farmed animals after all. And you don't get paid for sick or dead birds. You don't get paid for dead birds. And that was money out of his pocket. He started to fall behind. And he kind of reached a breaking point. The birds were sick. The payments were never ending. And that was a real point of change for me because I went there really almost to like manipulate and trick him into giving me footage. And then I kind of sat in his living room and I was just shocked and ashamed that I never thought about him Mm. as a person and his struggles and like what he had been through. And my fear dissipated and was replaced with shame. And then also like, I need to work with this person. We, We need to work together. He hates this as much as I do. And then it's kind of, blew up my idea of what was going on at these farms and how to solve the problem. And from there, I just kind of kept chasing that curiosity. Like what happens if I sit down, what happens if I get the chance to sit down with another factory farmer or a meat executive or, you know, a chairman of a board of a meat executive or an investor, what happens? Let's Mm -hmm. just see, let's just see what happens if I, really I'm open to a real conversation and I really try to understand why they're resistant. And quite often I am very surprised to find out that that person is extremely sympathetic to the cause and just doesn't know what to do or how to fix it. Mm. 
Your approach has been criticized as being siding with the enemy by working with them. What is your perspective on that, and why do you think we need to be willing to listen and to work with our adversaries? Yeah, I have definitely been criticized for doing this, and I understand that sentiment because it's really it's scary. You think you might be um, compromising your morals, but I've never compromised my values or my morals, and I, I'm always very clear about that with whoever I'm speaking to. Being having integrity and honesty in the conversations is a really important part of who I am and how I do things. But I think to those who think that, I would say I think that you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if you want to solve these hard problems. Because I was, my eyes were really opened up talking to Craig, and what can happen if we step out of our comfort zone. And only talking to people who agree with us often won't get us to the solution. And we are so, as human beings, we want to do that. We only want to talk to the people who are going, yeah, 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 I agree. But the thing is you know, the opponent, this person, this farmer, the meat industry, they often hold the power to solve the problem. So in my case, I'm not in charge of a single chicken. The farmer is and Purdue was. And if I want to convince them, I at least need to like sit down with them and really understand the problem. At worst, like you'll learn something and you'll learn something about the problem you're trying to solve by talking to them. And at best, you might see really big solutions together. So I think understanding their story, understanding their resistance, understanding and entering that space is really an important part, no matter. And I think you have to put your discomfort to one side mm -hmm. and think like impact. What will get me to impact? That's the most important part. Like we're often as advocates and activists really hung up on our, our principles and they get in the way sometimes in terms of wanting to win points, you know, on our debates. And I think we have to think about the end goal. In a past interview, you noted that while growing up, you realized that you're not a detail-oriented person. You're a vision-oriented person. Do you think this part of who you are has influenced your approach in that you're really looking for whatever it'll take to more effectively and quickly reach your vision of a more sustainable and ethical world? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think when I when I think, I mean, that stems from when I was a kid. Like, I'm just not a detail-oriented <laughs> person. Like, I leave, you know... And my husband can tell you, I leave drawers open, like not, you know, like caps of things unscrewed. Like I'm just like, it's just not in my brain, but you know, I think that what I like that impact is what I care about and how are we going to get there? And I went through phases as an activist. So phase one was just, I wish everybody knew if I just give them the information, they'll be convinced that I thought it was just that people didn't have enough information. That was like phase one. Phase two was realizing, oh, wait, people do have the information and they don't care and getting really angry about that. And then, you know, that was a long phase where I was just angry about it. And then phase three was what you just said, which is, you know what, like, I don't have to have the whole world think chickens are as special as I do. I just need them to move in the direction with me for their reasons or my reasons or whatever reasons, but we just need to make progress. And so letting go of this idea that everybody had to care about it for the same reasons I cared about it was a really big part of me thinking of that vision, that the end goal that we want to get to. Mm. And you mentioned Craig already, but how did you manage to get these mega farm owners and executives to sit down with you and hear you out? And on the flip side, how has hearing them out changed your perspective on what it'll take to address the exploitation of animals from all factory farms out there that are currently dominating this whole market? Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, Craig and I, for those who don't know, we decided to put out a video together. And that was something I never thought I'd do. And it was like a huge risk. It was very scary because I was afraid he was afraid too, that he'd lose his income, his land. I was afraid I would get sued, all of these things, but we did it anyway. And it paid off. We got covered in the New York times with, by Nicholas Kristoff. And we had a million people see the video in, in one day. It really it was definition viral. And teaming up with him made me braver and about teaming up with others. And two years after sitting down with Craig, I found myself doing the same thing with with an even bigger so-called enemy, Jim Perdue himself, right? Mm. <laughs> the the very man I had made like the villain of my viral video. And so what happened was after stonewalling me for about a year, I there was a New York Times article that came out by, um, I forget her name, I think Stephanie Stronson was the, art, the journalist, and she wrote about antibiotics and chicken and how Purdue was moving away from it. But then at the end, and it wasn't the point of the article, but at the end, there was a part about how Purdue had gone to England and was looking at better systems for chicken welfare. And there was a quote at the very end that said, Jim Purdue said, we need happier birds. And I was like floored by this statement, right? And I knew exactly who they were visiting with from the articles because I was really inside this world. I knew they were meeting with Marion Dawkins because they referred to in the article, we need to look at what a chicken needs and wants. And all this stuff spelled like, okay, I thought they weren't listening, but over the last year, they've obviously been doing something internally. And then I wrote to their PR person and I kind of wrote this very heartfelt email. And I said, I saw this article can we talk? Because I can see what you're doing. I, I know who you must be talking with. Like, can we sit down again? And I got a response. And at the same time, they had just had an undercover investigation done on them for Mercy for Animals. And I wasn't working at Mercy for Animals at that stage. I am now, the, I'm now the president there. But that, they kind of, internally, they tell the story that they got then also that Mercy for Animals investigation, which they were appalled by. And they all said, like, this is not okay. We need to fix, we need to do something. Mm -hmm. And they had a cri they had like a crisis of conscience as well. So between those two things, they invited me to a DC like law firm to sit down and talk about what an animal care policy, as they called it, could look like. And we started to draft the first one. And then in July 2016, they published their first animal care policy, committing to do some of the exact same things that we'd criticize them for not doing. And now they're, they continue doing that. So they, they started putting windows in the farmer's warehouses. So the sunlight could shine through even paying for those windows in the farms, which was unheard of is still unheard of. And so they were the first major poultry company to make this commitment. And they have a lot further to go for sure. But year after year, we keep talking. So that was July, 2016. I just went for the third, fourth year in a row to keep, and every year they're making some progress, you know, they're, they're moving in the right direction. And that, and, and if you fast forward to, you know, the trajectory was they were the villain in my video, then they sat down an animal care policy. Well, then, you know, last couple months ago, Purdue announced it was exploring plant-based protein. And, mm. and this was through conversations we had where they said, we said this is what the consumer is wanting. And Jim Purdue put out a statement in Bloomberg saying, we're a premium protein company, but nothing about that says it has to come from chickens, essentially. It can come from plant-based. If that's where the demand is, we'll explore that. And they are exploring that. And that's that's an incredible arc for a company to go on. And I do think it comes from their willingness and my willingness to sit down and and, and kind of devise a, a path together. Mm. 
On a more personal note, when you feel that passion so deeply in your heart, how do you emotionally and mentally manage and cope with having these confrontations and even find empathy for those on the other side? And what gives you the continued courage to do so? I think, as I said before, I think as activists, we can get really, and I, it, it happens to me regularly, so by no means am I great at this, but you get caught up in the principle, right? It would have been all too easy if if I were to have sat down with some of these companies and demanded first that they agree with me that animals shouldn't be slaughtered at all. And if I had started from that point, then we would have gotten it where the door would have been slammed in my face. And it was many times as I as I moved through this work. And instead I find a way to frame what I'm doing in a way that says, this is my position. I understand your needs. Can we find a common way forward? So I will, you know, they know, I mean, they know I work for Amnesty for Animals. Like we are absolutely an animal rights organization that believes in that, you know, ending the exploitation of animals altogether and ending, and, and the pathway that we're doing that is reducing the suffering of the animals while we work towards that plant-based world. And they know that. And I think sometimes you'd be surprised how they appreciate that we're willing to talk, even though that's so strongly the position. So I think I think about progress and impact and taking steps in the right direction. And as long as I'm making progress, I think that's what matters. Quite often, the analogy I use is that if you were a prisoner that is in is on death row and you're in a terrible prison with terrible conditions and you don't deserve to be there, would you want someone to end the death penalty only? Or would you want them to work on ending the death penalty and improving your prison conditions while they're working on that longer project? And you would want both. And that's how I think of the job. I think of as I sit down, I I don't think I'm compromising my values in doing this. I, I try to stay focused on impact and progress. I want to talk about accessibility a little bit. So 23 million Americans today currently live in food deserts with little to no other options other than fast food chains that likely do source their ingredients from conventional agriculture and these mega factory farms. So to address the privilege of choice, how do we make healthy plant-based meals more accessible and for places that do already have this access, encourage more people to try out plant-based options since people can be resistant to change? Yeah. um, Well, I really believe in institutional change. So I believe in changing the options on the shelf for everyone. I mean, good, healthy food is not a privilege. It should be a right. And nobody wants to eat animals that have been tortured. Nobody. And it's not fair. It's not right that that is right now in our world, some kind of privileged choice. It's not okay. And I put that on the companies. I, I, I put that on the companies and I say to them and to our governments, like, do not enable this as the only choice for these these, the, the majority of the population. So, and, and you see some companies, I think there is a potential for institutional change at like the supermarket, the fast food world. So I know that's not healthy, no matter, like that's not a very healthy choice, but if you look at this week in Atlanta, I don't know if you saw the news, but it was super exciting. KFC partnered with Beyond Meat, which is a plant-based meat and produced a, a Kentucky fried plant-based chicken Mm. and they tested it out for one day and one day only. Right. And it was wild. They had, 
they said that they, that the communications person from KFC told me they had two weeks worth of what they'd normally have for chicken and they sold out in five hours. It was insane. And, and while that is not as healthy as eating like rice and beans per se, it's way healthier than eating animals. So it has no cholesterol. It has less unsaturated fat and you know, it's better for the environment. It doesn't harm any animals. So it's a step in the right direction. And I think that these, in some of these, you know, food deserts, they're already populated with the fast food chains. The fast food chain should step up and provide the plant-based options and move in that direction. And it shouldn't be this kind of, it shouldn't be a privilege. It should be accessible to everyone. And that's one way to do it. I do think it's, it's very hard but there's great websites like Plant Based on a Budget that provide options like, you know, rice and bean kind of options. But it's assuming that you have time to cook and not everybody does. So also time is a privilege, you know. And I think a, a, a kind of compromise is getting these fast food chains to provide more healthy options and institutional change at that level. Mm. Over the years observing the environmental movement, I would be naive to say that I haven't noticed this constant tension between animal rights activists who believe that there's no such thing as an ethical way to consume animal products and environmental activists who believe that there is a better way to eat more ethically, especially through regenerative agriculture. Certainly that's an oversimplification because many people cross those boundaries, but in spite of the differences in ideologies and end goals, I think we can all agree that we want to reduce harm and suffering as much as possible. We want to improve the health and biodiversity of our ecosystems so that all life on Earth can live better lives. And that in the pursuit of these goals, the monstrous dominant industry that is factory farming really has to end. So through everything that you've learned, how do you think we can create a more powerful and collaborative people-led movement where public health activists, social justice activists, environmental activists, animal rights activists, and beyond can work together in addressing the exploitation of workers, the environment, and the animals within factory farms and to start to really achieve some of our shared goals? Yeah, I think that is a wonderful point. And I, I think there's a misconception that I, I really believe like the majority, the large majority, like 99% of animal rights activists, if all that existed was regenerative agriculture, it would just not be our biggest. It's just, it's not a problem. Like that's a, that's a, the number of animals, the suffering is minimal. Like that's something we can agree on. Right. So I worked closely with the regenerative organic standard, which was created by a group of us. And I represented the animal welfare side of that standard. It was created with Patagonia's president, Rose Macario and David Bronner from Dr. Bronner's brand. And it was with a, this is an example of what you're talking about. So it's a shared mission. And there was, there was someone representing like fair trade and workers' rights. There was somebody representing animal welfare. That was me. There was somebody representing the uh, soil health, which is a Rodell Institute. There were farmers there, like Will Harris from White Oak Pasture. And then there was the business part of it. So that was Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's. And together, we created a standard that we all believed in. And it was a very high standard. It's an extremely high bar. And I think that is the the synergy of all these efforts. Like we can create a way that we all agree on what it means. And everybody agrees. It's like very, very few animals could be raised under this, these circumstances. And they will all lead very, very natural lives until the day that they're killed. There's very little suffering involved in that. 
And it's a place where we can make agreement. But I think what we all need to get way more serious, like setting that aside, is about adopting plant-based diets. So we've done the math on this. And I, you know, I think people don't understand how serious this is, what a serious environmental risk and what we're up against. So in 30 years from now, there's going to be nearly 10 billion people. And the number of farmed animals is set to double if we keep animal animals the way we do. And I did like a small exercise to try to figure out what if we wanted to half the number of animals that we eat today by 2050 with 10 billion animals. And it doesn't equal eating half the number, like a 50% reduction because of this accelerating number of human beings. It means us eating 10% of what we eat today per Mm -hmm. capita in the United States. And that's only to get to you know, from our 10 billion we today to 5 billion, you know, that's only to get to half. I think that the seriousness with which we need to take on a plant-based policy, it's not taken seriously enough by the entire, all the constituents I just named. And that would, I think, needs to be done better. When I think of my friends that work at Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, or on workers' rights, like so many workers are abused and the processing plants. And if we required very high levels of worker rights, it would reduce, it would increase the cost of chicken. It would mean that less animals are abused. It would mean less workers are abused. Like anything we can do to improve the system at any level will increase the cost and decrease demand. And we have to get so serious about decreasing that demand and Mm. decreasing consumption. That's a huge part of the issue is all the costs that are left out of the picture that are imposed right. on everything else but the actual price of the final product. Because if yeah. things actually reflected their true cost, then there's no way that demand can be that high because it'll be more expensive. All the costs are externalized. And that's what I was, you know, back in the post-World War II era when these subsidies and programs were created, we weren't thinking about that. And, and all the costs continue continue to be externalized. And it's hard to put them all into one place because how do you calculate the cost of increasing line speeds, which has just happened under the Trump administration, right? So we went from 125, 35 birds per minute to 175 birds per minute in a slaughterhouse. That's how many birds are killed per minute. It's allowed on in a processing plant right now. I mean, just try to visualize that. So that was recently done. They're going to do it with hogs as well, where they're going to increase the line speeds. Now the cost, how do you, how do you cost that? So there's going to be less oversight on human safety in terms of um, our consumption of those animals. So they are going to allow the companies to police themselves and there'll be less inspections done. There's also going to be increased injury to all of the human beings that are in the plant. So for sure, there's already huge amounts of injuries and arms, fingers, limbs getting cut in this process from the workers. But there's also the repetitive actions that they're doing, resulting in carpal tunnel syndrome, back issues, you know, all the abuses to the animals, of course, as the line speeds speed up, there's, it's just going to be a much less, um, even less humane. It's not going to, it's going to be even worse torturous process for them. And how do you cost that out? Like, There will be people who become sick as a direct result of line speeds being sped up. And how do we calculate that? You know, how do we, how do we do that? And and that's the thing about this. It's so, there's all these externalized costs and they're massive and calculating them is really challenging, but it's out there. It's, it's, this is happening. 
As we're nearing the end of our conversation, I'd love to dive into some solutions and our path forward. <laughs> so what can we do as individuals to support a more ethical food industry and help our population to collectively move towards more plant-based diets and address the system in place that's currently encouraging the status quo? Well, I think we have great power as individuals, which is part of why I work on this issue. You know, it's it's each of us chooses to what we choose three times a day to eat. And we have such, we can vote with our fork. We can, we have a power in our choices, in our meals, in our individual meals. And if you're head of a household and you're purchasing for your household, you can influence your household. And that's great power. There's like great relief that this is something we can each do something about depending on our food choices. And it, it requires some effort. It requires some thinking and asking a lot of people will sit down and they'll go to a farm-to-table restaurant and they just won't even ask, where's this chicken come from? And if it doesn't come from a place that you don't feel comfortable, just please don't eat it. Like, choose plant-based. There's an option that's delicious. And I would encourage people to do that at the individual level. But then the, the real, like, big change is going to come when we change institutions. So when you're in your local restaurant, when you're in your KFC, like, let them know. I would, like to have beyond chicken on the menu, right? Like be a, a citizen consumer who is writing to these institutions, writing to your, let's say your, your school, your, like your kids go to a local school. You can ask them for a meatless money. There's so much you can do because we're each involved in this choice as, as consumers. We're invested. We have a vested interest and we have a, we have a vote and power with the amount, with the money that we spend on our food choices. So there's a lot we can do. Um, you can sign up to mercyforanimals.org's Hen Heroes. We give lots of actions for people to, to take and, and be part of if they want to become an advocate. And uh, there's lots of other organizations that do that too. And finally, in thinking about the bigger picture of realizing a more just and sustainable world, through your experience working with adversaries to move the needle forward, whether our listener is wanting to address the issues in animal agriculture, the seafood industry, the chemical industry, conventional farming, fossil fuels, mining and logging, and so forth, what are some final pieces of guidance you have for us in terms of how we can go about reaching across the aisle to develop those relationships and work together for a better future? I think the main message is it requ you have to you're required to let go of this concept of us versus them and accept there's only one us and there's some kind of unjust system mm. that we could correct together. And that's going to be really challenging and it's going to be difficult and messy and uncomfortable, but it's worth it. And remembering it's a system that's wrong, not an individual. And try to always think that there's a system hurting everybody and 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 not the person that you're, you're directing your hate towards. And that I think is a really powerful mindset to go into any conversation with, and it can really unlock progress, whether you're working on any of the, I think it, in the lessons apply to many hard causes, whether it be with like a, a, a one person, like a neighbor, an ex-husband, an in-law, or these systems of exploitation, factory farming, climate change, racism, misogyny. And I think the largest, I mean, even the smallest problems with your neighbor, let's say, can be solved by looking for those win-win pathways and considering it's a system that's unjust. It's not that individual.
Towards the end of 2018, I made Green Dreamer planners printed on FSC certified paper with soy ink, featuring our major environmental awareness dates and motivational quotes from our past guests that also supported reforestation projects with the nonprofit Eden Projects. I was initially hesitant to make them again this year because after covering a host of unexpected costs from unfortunate things that happened last year, it ended up not making any sense for me financially, especially when I'm trying to fundraise to be able to keep this show going. But so many people have been asking me about it in the past few months, saying it really supported them this past year, they really hope that I can bring them back, that I started researching my options again to see how I can improve upon what I did last year and actually make it work out. So I'm in the process of working on a 2020 to 21 Green Dreamer planner right now. If you may be interested, please do sign up to Green Dreamer's Weekly Digest so I can keep you posted and so I can also gauge interest levels for me to keep doing this. And even with that aside, I'd love for you to subscribe for free to our Weekly Digest anyway, where we share solutions-driven positive news stories to keep us motivated and inspired every single week. To sign up, you can head to greendreamer.com slash subscribe. I hope to catch you in your inbox, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I don't know. I, I, I really enjoy following some of the, um, honestly, like the great cooking channels, like <laughs> the, the Oh, She Glows cookbook, as I said, is like just a fun, great, beautiful way to enjoy plant-based eating. So Mm. I will just say that. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Never give up. (laughs) (laughs) They might say no, keep coming back. Like, don't give up. Don't Mm. give up. It's worth it. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I am working on going to a yoga class at least three times a week. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet and our world? Well, the job I do is <laughs> exactly that, is ex- exactly that. What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I'm very hopeful when I see companies taking on plant-based options, companies that I never thought would do that, like KFC and Burger King, trying out plant-based options. I mean, I just didn't ever think I'd see the day. And it makes me so hopeful that we can turn this, sh- this ship around. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Leah's work, you can head to www.mercyforanimals.org. To learn more about her recently published book, Grilled, you can head to mercyforanimals.org slash grilled. Uh, Leah, where are some places where people can buy your book? On Amazon, on Bloomsbury, and at all great bookstores. Perfect. <laughs> and to follow Leah, you can find her on Instagram at Leah Garces, on Twitter at Leah underscore Compassion, and on Facebook at Leah.Garces. I'll have all this linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com as well, so you can reference them later if you're on the go at the moment. Um, Leah, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your journey and your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? There are so many causes out there. Just choose one and put yourself at it because the world needs uh, green dreamers for sure. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. 
To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer weekly digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.